Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Uh, Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Heritage Foundation for the first of our two annual Russell Kirk Lectures. I'm Arthur Millick, Research Fellow and Associate Director of the Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and Politics at the Heritage Foundation. Before the 2016 presidential election, only some D.C. insiders and a handful of others were concerned about China. Remember when a few years ago Mitt Romney had called Russia our biggest geopolitical foe? Remember how the Obama administration's so-called pivot to Asia took China to be a paper tiger? President Trump initiated the popular awakening. For a decade, the public, along with a handful of powerful voices throughout the country, were willing to look the other way, while China expanded in clever and novel ways, often at the expense of our nation's interests. Many have wanted to believe that mysterious forces will somehow guide the modern world towards peace and prosperity, or that America will forever remain strong and preeminent. Indulging in such dreams, we have been giving away our comparative advantages to China. What did we get in return? Cheap commercial goods and credit. But for commercial societies like ours, intellectual property and scientific innovations are our comparative advantages, as we are not really capable of waging long-term wars. The word strategy is endlessly thrown around in Washington. We are all told to think strategically, and when we do, we end up actually being granular and unimaginative. We are not trained to think about the psychology of global ambitions and the plans to accomplish them. But tonight, I hope we can begin to understand China's end goal. What does China hope to accomplish, and how will it do it? Finally, and most importantly for us, what does this all mean for America? And there is no better person than David Goldman to help us do this. As many of you know, David Goldman is behind the Spengler column at the Asia Times. Under that pseudonym, he's written some 300 essays on so many topics, uh, the death of nations, Islam's confrontation with modernity, classical music, existential theology. As As he has explained, his core thesis is that the response of nations to their own mortality is the key to understanding the great events of our time. Goldman has published two books, both of which I would highly recommend. The first is How Civilizations Die, and a collection of essays called It's Not the End of the World, It's Just the End of You. During the course of a fascinating career, he has, among other other things, worked as the global head of debt research for Bank of America and the global head of credit strategy for Credit Suisse. He has consulted the National Security Council during the Reagan administration, He's advised post-communist governments in Russia and Nicaragua. He's published peer-reviewed papers on philosophy, music, mathematics. He's taught music. I mean, this is so varied. It's remarkable. He's taught music 
uh, in, two, in two universities in New York. And he has been, as many of you probably know, the senior editor at First Things. David will speak for about 30, 35 minutes, and then he will field uh, questions from the audience. Please help me in welcoming David Goldman. Arthur, thank you for that extremely generous uh, introduction. Uh, I'd first like to express my gratitude to the Heritage Foundation for the opportunity to speak to you about China's challenge to the United States. To be invited to give a Russell Kirk lecture at Heritage is a great honor to be invited back is, is humbling. And the two questions I'd like to address tonight are simply what does China want and what should the United States do about it? Uh, President Trump summed up China's intentions quite well in a May 19th interview with uh, Steve Hilton of Fox News, who asked him, a lot of people say that China wants to replace the U.S. as a superpower. The president responded, it's not going to happen with me. Hilton persisted, do you believe that's their intention? Trump replied, yes, I do. Why wouldn't it be? They're very ambitious people. They're very smart. They're a great people. It's a great culture. But China's notion of what it means to be the world's superpower is different from ours, and it begs examination. Earlier this month, uh, Dr. Kieran Skinner, the head of policy planning at the State Department, had this to say, I quote, in China, we have an economic competitor, we have an ideological competitor, one that really does seek a kind of global reach that many of us didn't expect a couple of decades ago. And I think it's also striking that it's the first time that we will have a great power competitor that is not Caucasian. As Victor David Hansen commented on these remarks, Japan was in fact a great power competitor and a formidable one from its crushing defeat of Russia in 1905 to the end of the Second World War. To put the present situation in context, Japan's GDP in 1940 was a fifth of America's and its population only half of ours. China's GDP is roughly the same as ours. In terms of purchasing power parity, it's 25% larger, according to the IMF. In nominal dollar terms, it's 30% smaller, so roughly on parity. Its population is nearly five times that of ours. China's investment in frontier technology exceeds America's by a wide margin. It also graduates four times as many STEM bachelor's degrees and twice as many doctorates, and that gap is widening. A third of new labor market entrants in China have bachelor's degrees, and a third of those are in engineering. Today, the two economies are of roughly equal size, but China is growing twice as fast. President Trump has said repeatedly that our economy is doing well while China's economy is doing badly. Uh, he's misinformed. The perception that China is weak is widespread in Washington and evidently contributed to the recent breakdown in trade negotiations. That is a strategic miscalculation, in my view, that may have baleful consequences. China fears nothing but America's technological edge, and that edge is eroding at an alarming pace. But Dr. Skinner is broadly correct. We have never engaged a strategic rival with resources and skills on this scale. Today's situation is radically different in another respect. In America and China, we observe the confrontation of the national and the imperial principle in its purest form. America is history's most successful nation state. Its premise is the sanctity of the individual, the heritage of the English Protestants who in the 17th century envisioned a biblical republic. 
When I last had the privilege of addressing you three years ago, I spoke about our unifying political culture and its ever-present theme of the individual's pilgrimage towards redemption. Our sense of the sacred in every citizen has proven a stronger and more enduring bond than the ethnocentric nationalisms of the old world. China is the oldest, and despite intermittent breakdowns, the most successful empire in history, subjecting the interest of the individual to the imperatives of the state. Unlike America, China never assimilated the scores of ethnicities who comprise its enormous population. Instead, it orders them into an imperial system ruled by a centralized elite and communicates by a system of imperial ideograms rather than a common spoken language. It maintains a ruthless meritocracy that filters talent by standardized examinations. It has always viewed its people as a resource for imperial power rather than a, a congregation of individuals with sacred rights. Within living memory, it has sacrificed frightful numbers of its own people. The imperial order is perpetually at risk of fracture, and the succession of dynasties is interrupted by episodes of internecine war and unimaginable suffering. But the imperial system perpetually restores itself because the Chinese have had no alternative to, to warlords and anarchy. Most Chinese will tell you, we need an emperor, otherwise we'll kill each other. Two threats haunt the nightmares of every Chinese dynasty. The rebel province supported by foreign intervention that occasions the overthrow of the dynasty and the fracture of the empire. That is why China will go to war over minor objectives in the South China Sea. It follows the proverb, kill the chicken while the monkey watches. China is in effect saying that it will, if it will fight for atolls in the South China Sea, a fortiari will it fight for Taiwan. The Communist Party of China has established an imperial dynasty in which a committee of mandarins rules in place of a biological imperial family. It surely ranks among China's most successful dynasties. Between 1979 and 2018, China's GDP per capita rose nearly 50-fold in current U.S. dollars. None of its predecessors had so strong a claim on the mandate of heaven. As the sinologist Francesco Sisi observes, this is a golden age for the Chinese, the first time in China's 5,000-year history where none need fear death by famine or war. China's imperial model differs fundamentally from that of Japan during the first half of the 20th century. Japan sto strove for ethnic homogeneity, while China is ethnically diverse and inclusive. That is a strength as well as a weakness. The clearest embodiment of Chinese imperial strategy is the entity that is now at the epicenter of Sino-American tension, namely Huawei Technologies. As an investment banker employed by a Chinese firm between 2013-2016, I had occasion to observe Huawei's operations firsthand and work with some of its senior executives. Huawei is not a Chinese company. It's instead an imperial horde. 50,000 of its 190,000 employees are Western. Most of these are engaged in research and development. Huawei drove out competitors and hired their best engineers. It has attracted many of the world's best researchers by funding R&D institutes in more than 20 countries. It spends almost twice as much on R&D than the combined spending of its two closest competitors, Nokia and Ericsson. 
What does this unique ancient dynasty want in the 21st century? It surely does not want to replace the United States as the world's superpower on President Trump's watch. It has neither the capacity nor the competence to wage a global war on terrorism, to protect sea lanes, to manage Russia's ambitions in Europe and the Middle East, and in general to exercise the responsibilities of a dominant superpower. It's happy to gestate a new Sinocentric economic order under the umbrella of American power. Chinese planners speak privately as 2035 as the breakout year, when China will be so powerful that no one can oppose it. The communist dynasty wants to restore China to the dominant position it held in the world economy during most of recorded history. In 1700, China produced a third of the world's economic output, while the UK, France, and Germany together comprised less than 15%. China views the 19th and 20th centuries as a passing aberration. The corrupt and feckless Qin dynasty permitted a century of humiliation, from the first Opium War of 1848 to the Communist Revolution in 1949. And China's leaders are determined to avoid the errors of the past and make the China the world's hegemonic power eventually. There are economic and military components to the strategy. China's economic strategy has two prongs. The first is technological supremacy. Let me emphasize that China could not care less about tariffs on furniture or laptops or toys from the United States. The second is the export of the Chinese model to countries inhabited by two billion people and their absorption into a Chinese economic empire. This is embodied in the Belt and Road Initiative, which proposes nothing less than the thoroughgoing economic transformation of the global south along Chinese lines. China devotes vast state resources to critical technologies, including, for example, fifth-generation broadband and its applications, quantum computing, quantum communications, artificial intelligence, and gene sequencing. China understands that silicon is the military power of the 21st century, what steel was the military power of the 19th century. The State Council in 2014 called for China to achieve world leadership in semiconductors by 2030, and projected $118 billion of investments over the next five years. Whatever plans China had before the present technology war became obsolete in April 2018, when the United States suspended exports of handset chips to ZTE and virtually shut the company down. The Chinese government then put virtually unlimited resources into the hands of the semiconductor industry, particularly Huawei, and China's progress towards self-sufficiency in high-end semiconductors has been nothing less than astonishing. China's chip designs now rival those of Qualcomm, NVIDIA, and Intel. China's sprint up the learning curve in chip design and manufacturing has been, in my view, the biggest economic surprise of the past several years. We should make no mistake, the semiconductor industry is the king on the chessboard. China's military strategy centers on aerial denial and deterrence. Its surface to ship missiles can force American aircraft carriers to deploy very far from its coast, vitiating America's superiority in military aircraft. It has the capacity to blind or destroy American satellites with lasers and missiles. 
It has developed hypervelocity missiles against which no defense presently exists and which can target American aircraft carriers as well as the American mainland with nuclear warheads. It has acquired Russia's S-500 air defense system with a range to sweep the skies over Taiwan. It has some less publicized capabilities. For, for example, I called on the CEO of a Chinese tech company that my colleagues had taken public at his office in Shenzhen, and he pulled out his iPhone and showed me an app. The app was a map of the South China Sea with hundreds of little blinking dots. He said every dot is the position, speed, and condition of the motor of a ship in the South China Sea, every ship in the South China Sea. I asked where he got the data. He said, we have hundreds of balloons tethered to merchant vessels by coaxial cable doing what satellites can do but better. And if there's a war where satellites are destroyed, we'll still have 100% coverage of our own coast. What the PLA does not do is just as revealing. The People's Liberation Army has nearly a million soldiers. It spends about $1,500 to equip each of them. We spend over $17,000. It owns no ground attack aircraft like the American A-10 or the Soviet Su-25 Frankfurt. Its capacity to put boots on the ground outside its borders is very limited. That's not surprising. China reached its present frontiers, more or less, under the Tang Dynasty 1,300 years ago. It's not prepared to march on its neighbors. Uh, to be sure, China has about 30,000 Marines and an additional 50,000 um, amphibiously trained mechanized infantry, which is enough to successfully invade Taiwan. It has the capacity to lift them across the Taiwan Straits. It has more ships than the United States, though vastly inferior tonnage. Its objective is not to engage the superior American fleet in conventional naval battles, but to secure its growing overseas assets and to achieve supremacy in coastal waters. China's military investment supports its growing economic reach overseas. American observers mistakenly believe that China is playing a sort of global monopoly game, securing ports and other logistical nodes to control trade routes with a hotel in Somalia and a hotel in Sri Lanka and so forth. China's overseas strategy has many facets, including securing supplies of energy and raw materials, but its central objective is to transform the economies of the global south on the Chinese model. It wants to, if I can coin a term, to Sinoform countries with a combined population of 2 billion from Southeast Asia to Eastern Europe and extending to Latin America. China understands the disruptive power of mobile broadband and its ability to transform the daily life of people now immured in backwardness and isolation and link them to a global marketplace uh, configured by Chinese technology, Chinese industrial organization, and Chinese finance. The rise of the Chinese economy is the most momentous event in modern economic history, and the Chinese intend to propagate this model globally. The prospective transformation is breathtaking. So-called developing countries generally don't develop. Most people work as a subsistence plot with poor implements, or they sit in a market stall waiting for someone to come along and buy a liter of cooking oil. They have no capital, no productivity. They basically sit around most of the day and do very little. They don't pay taxes, so the government doesn't have money to spend on infrastructure, and you have a vicious <laughs> circle of poverty. 
informal employment, which basically means impoverished, capital-deprived employment, in the global south ranges from 55% in Mexico to 85% in India. What globalization has accomplished under Western auspices is a pale shadow of what a Sinocentric world would do. This is not necessarily a bad thing per se, but I do not wish to see China emerge as a dominant superpower as a result. That's the essence of the Belt and Road Initiative. Huawei is both the spearhead of Chinese overseas expansion as well as an organizational model for the execution of that expansion. The Chinese economic model is the extreme version of the model that began with Japan's restoration to power of the Meiji dynasty in 1868, and then replicated by South Korea and Taiwan. Moved subsistence farmers to the cities, built factories for them to work in. While its per capita GDP rose 35 times in the last 40 years, China moved 550 million people from the countryside to the cities, and it built the equivalent of all the cities in Europe to house them. A new Liverpool, a new Glasgow, a new Naples, a new Stockholm, and it built 80,000 miles of superhighway and 18,000 miles of high-speed train to move them about. Modernization in China is not the enclave of a small middle class, as in most of the developing world, but a movement that reaches into the capital areas of society. Entrepreneurs in Chinese villages connect to the world market through mobile broadband, sell their products and buy supplies on the Alibaba platform, and obtain credit from microfinancing platforms. Information and capital flow down to the roots of the economy and products flow back up to the world market. China has ripped out traditional society by the roots in its own country, and it will do so everywhere else if given the opportunity. Meanwhile, China's economic relationship with the United States has changed radically during the past decade. Between 1979 and 2009, China depended on the U.S. consumer. In 2009, exports had reached 36% of China's GDP. After the world financial crisis, China was convinced that the American consumer would no longer be the great support of world demand. And it undertook to drastically reduce export dependency, so its share of GDP in exports has fallen to 18%, half of what it was in 2009, its exports to the U.S. are now only 5% of its manufacturing, and they represent mostly lower-value-added industries. About half involve assembly of consumer electronics from components they import from Taiwan and elsewhere. During the past decade, China has sought to shift these industries to low-wage countries like Vietnam. High tariffs on Chinese goods would only compel China to do faster and with more friction and discomfort what they have wanted to do all along. Chinese asked me, why is Trump trying to protect the industries that we want to get rid of? A sudden reduction of U.S. imports from China would require China to find alternative employment for millions of semi-skilled workers. That's a management headache, but it's not an existential threat. There's a popular current of thinking in the United States that has been predicting the collapse of China for the past two decades. It hasn't happened, and it won't. We have chronically underestimated China, the way Russia underestimated the Japanese in 1904, the United States and British underestimated the Japanese before Pearl Harbor and Singapore. 
Another school of thought held that economic liberalization inevitably would lead to political change. That's whistling in the dark. We can't change China from the outside, and it won't oblige us by collapsing of its own weight. Parenthetically, China's debt-to-GDP ratio is the same as ours, about 250% of GDP. The difference is that most of the Chinese debt is owed by the government to itself as a consequence of spending on uh, infrastructure. Where do we stand in the United States now? Uh, two weeks ago, I joined a group of uh, China watchers uh, at the Committee for President uh, Danger meeting in New York alongside Steve Bannon. Steve remarked that American corporations are unregistered Chinese foreign agents and that Wall Street is China's investor relations department. That's a bit exaggerated, but there's a disturbing element of truth. It's an ill wind that blows nobody good. We talk about China's damage to the United States economy, but cheap Chinese electronics imports helped support the valuation of U.S. tech companies, which has risen by $13 trillion in the past 10 years. American corporations eschewed capital-intensive investments and invested in software and in apps. That made Silicon Valley very rich indeed. We remonstrate with the Chinese about forced technology transfers, but we have more to fear from voluntary transfers. Most American corporations can't wait to transfer technology to the Chinese in return for privileged access to the Chinese market. To paraphrase Leon Trotsky, you may not be interested in industrial policy, but industrial policy is interested in you. The Asian model treats capital-intensive industry as infrastructure. It supports chip foundries with public funds the way we've subsidized sports arenas. The Asian model began, as I said, with Japan's major restoration now, Japan, China, South Korea, and Taiwan subsidize capital-intensive industry with the result that virtually all high-tech products, every one of them invented in the United States, are manufactured in Asia. All the technologies of the digital age, integrated circuits, sensors, displays, lasers, the Internet, were invented in America uh, with research support by the Defense Department, NASA, and other government agencies. America has stopped investing in capital-intensive high-tech production, and there's virtually zero venture capital going into anything to do with manufacturing. The result is disastrous. America's share of semiconductor manufacturing fell from 25% in 2011 to less than 10% in 2018. In five years, industry sources projected it will be less than 5%. A country that cannot produce its own integrated circuits can't defend itself in the age of smart weapons. And I am a free trader and a free marketeer, except when it comes to national security. And here there's a national security override. We require elements of industrial policy as a matter of national security. China's outspending the United States in quantum computing, which might be the most important technology of this century. It spent $11 billion to build a single research facility in Hefei with a budget. By contrast, the U.S. government has allocated $1.2 billion for quantum computing over the next five years. China remains behind the U.S. in many key areas of technology, but it's catching up fast. In the last several years, for example, China landed a probe on the dark side of the moon. 
developed the first successful quantum communications uh, satellite, created a 2,000-kilometer-long quantum communication network between Beijing and Shanghai, and built some of the world's fastest supercomputers, and of course, is now the leader in fifth-generation mobile broadband. China's investment in education parallels its investment in high-tech industry. Today, China graduates four times as many STEM bachelor's degrees as the U.S., twice as many doctoral degrees, and it continues to gain. A third of Chinese students major in engineering versus only 7% in the United States, and many of those are Chinese foreign students. The most frightening thing is that 80% of all doctoral candidates in computer science and electrical engineering are foreign students, and the majority of those are Chinese. Most of them return to China. What we've done in the past 20 years is to use our best universities to train the world's best faculty in frontier technology areas in China. There's now a sharp drop-off of Chinese applications to study in the United States because the Chinese no longer have to come to study with the professors who taught the professors they have back home in China. We have less to fear today from China stealing existing U.S. technology than from Chinese invention of new technologies. For the first time since Sputnik, a foreign rival has leapfrogged the United States, in this case, 5G broadband. China spends perhaps an order of magnitude more than we do in quantum computing, as I mentioned, and we've responded much too late to the challenge. The United States conjoled and threatened its allies to exclude Huawei from the rollout of 5G broadband and received a humiliating rebuff. Parenthetically, a colleague of mine at Asia Times recently interviewed government minister of one of the largest European countries. He said, you don't have an American company that competes with Huawei. You don't produce 5G equipment. You tell us to go to Ericsson and Nokia of Scandinavia. They're second-rate companies who exist because Huawei lets them exist. So we don't have an alternative, and we don't understand what the United States wants from us. As I mentioned, China made spectacular progress in establishing uh, self-sufficiency in high-end uh, computer chips. A recent Japanese study reports that Huawei's handset chips are equal to or better than Apple's. Now, we've uh, recently we've had an executive order, which may or may not, depending on whether it's rescinded, uh, cut off access to American components to Huawei. Uh, the industry experts we've consulted and Huawei itself believe that if they can make their own silicon, reverse engineering the various smaller parts or sourcing them elsewhere is not going to be particularly difficult to do. American analysts tend to deprecate China's ability to innovate. I'm reminded of the siege of Baghdad in 1258 when the Mongols on their ponies with their bows and arrows surrounded Baghdad with its 15-foot thick stone walls, and the Abbasid Caliph thought he didn't really have to worry about them, except the Mongols brought with them a thousand Chinese siege engineers. The Chinese engineers knocked down the walls within three weeks, and the Mongols entered the city and killed everybody in it. I mentioned that, did I mention that Wally was 50,000 foreign employees? Now, China is exporting this model to the rest of the global south. It's much more complicated than 
Western press accounts typically portray. China, for example, is accused of setting debt traps to lock its neighbors into financial control. Um, that's exaggerated. Uh, for example, Sri Lanka uh, sold its Hambantota port to China in payment of debts outstanding. But in fact, only 10% of Sri Lanka's debt is owed to the Chinese. Most of that is on concessionary terms. Sri Lanka uh, got itself into its own debt trap before China came along. What China wants is not a financial relationship that gives it control. It wants, the, it wants to make 2 billion people into tenant farmers of the Chinese empire. Chinese planners are thinking a generation ahead. The scarcest resource in the world is going to be labor, particularly workers who could read an instruction manual, learn skilled jobs, and show up for work on time. Virtually all of the world's population growth during the 21st century will take place in sub-Saharan Africa and Pakistan. The problem is that the productive parts of the world are all aging together. There are plenty of young people in the world, but low educational levels, abysmal infrastructure, and political instability sideline the regions where population growth is most rapid. China's own labor force stopped growing by a, a couple of years ago. So China wants first dibs on the productive labor of the world. As its labor force declines, as it inevitably will, it will replace it with investments in the Belt and Road Initiative, harnessing the labor of billions of others. China's offer to the Global South is persuasive. Uh, I'll tell you a personal story about this. Uh, in my capacity as an investment banker, I brought uh, Mexico's ambassador to China to Huawei's headquarters in Shenzhen several years ago. We went through the exhibition hall, which is three times the size of the Air and Space Museum in Washington. Uh, after three hours of you know, looking at their various exhibits, the Huawei people sat us down in an amphitheater and a fellow got up with a PowerPoint, and he said, you Mexicans have a big economy, but very low broadband penetration. Your economy is backward because broadband is expensive and hard to get. Let us build a national broadband network for you. Then you can become a great and rich economy just like China. We'll bring in e-commerce. We'll bring in Alibaba. We'll bring in Baidu. We'll bring in microfinance. We'll make you like China, and you'll be rich. You sounded a bit like the Borg. We'll assimilate you. Resistance is futile. Uh, nothing came of it at the time, but Huawei is now building a national broadband network in Mexico and Brazil, and Baidu and Tencent are financing all of the e-commerce startups. The good news is that the prospects for a quantum jump in productivity in the developing world are very good. The bad news is that China is positioning itself to reap the harvest of this productivity. China wants to be the dominant supplier, investor, and technology provider in the region. By contrast, the United States has drifted towards the export profile of a Brazil with strength in agriculture and energy, but weakness in high technology manufacturing and exports. In Europe, China's most enthusiastic collaborators are the nationalist governments of Italy, Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, who seek Chinese leverage against the European community in Brussels. Italy's populist government was the first to sign on to, first in the G7, to sign on to China's Belt and Road Initiative, 
The Poles, our best friend in Europe, have as their premier national product an enormous airport 40 miles east of Warsaw, which they intend to be Europe's air freight hub to the Belt and Road Initiative. Frankfurt and London can't expand, so the Poles are going to be the air freight hub and link it to a new railroad line they've built uh, to China. It's the fate of small countries to orbit large ones. And to the extent that American economic power declines, they will, they will inevitably be attracted to China, including our best friends. Ten years ago, the United States could have shut down the export-dependent Chinese economy with tariff barriers, but not today. Five years ago, the United States could have crippled Huawei by depriving it of components, but not today. Restrictions on component sales to Huawei will not impede the rollout of 5G in Europe, as the leaders of Germany, France, and the Netherlands all said publicly in the last several days. Without offering better technology, we can't hold China back. We may not even be able to delay it. America is in the uncharacteristic position of attempting to use our influence to prevent a rival from doing something that we do not propose to do ourselves. That's a strategy which, to my knowledge, has never succeeded at any time in any place in recorded history. We should look back instead to our victory over the Soviet Union in the Cold War, a victory that confounded the conventional wisdom of the late 1970s that saw America in decline. Back then, we devoted 1.3% of our GDP, the equivalent of $260 billion in today's dollars, to basic research. Now, Federal funding of research and development has fallen by half, and a lot of that is fluff, like you know, climate change research. <laughs> I propose the following steps as exemplary. First, we've got to force key high-tech industry, particularly semiconductor fabrication, back onshore. A nation that can't produce its own semiconductors can't protect itself, can't be a global power. We should have export controls in high-tech. I'm not as worried about forced technology transfers as about American corporations standing in line to give their technology away. We should change Defense Department budget priorities to emphasize war-winning advanced technologies rather than legacy systems. We don't need as many carriers and F-35s. We need drone swarms. We need a new National Defense Education Act, which Eisenhower passed after Sputnik, which created an entire generation of engineers. We should collaborate with Japan, South Korea, and India to provide an alternative to the Belt and Road Initiative. China is arrogant and bullying in its handling of its trading partners. It's not well-liked, and if there were an alternative, many would be thrilled to work with us. We should engineer a brain drain of China's most talented scientific cadre. We can't change China's political system by cajoling the Communist Party or its reprehensible practices. But we can deprive it of the talents of some of its most creative, independent, and freedom-loving minds. China can innovate. We can innovate better. The American Alliance of Defense-Driven Research and Private Entrepreneurship created the digital age, something no other country could have accomplished. We can astonish the world again, but only if we summon all of our national resources to do so. That's the longer-term solutions. What happens in the short run? We can escalate the present trade and technology war with China. 
with considerable collateral damage to the world economy. We have no guarantee of victory in such a short-term confrontation. China has been preparing for such a contingency for the past 10 years. All-out trade war probably would damage the president's position in the 2020 election. And I want to make clear, I'm an always Trumper, and I very much want to see him reelected. Alternatively, we can agree to an armistice and what promises to be a very long war and return to the policies that ensured our victory in the past. We've underestimated the Chinese. Let them discover that they've underestimated us. With that, thank you very much for your attention. Good evening. We have about 20 minutes for questions. I'd be delighted to take them, sir. Um, is there a microphone? Uh, I started to read, but I didn't finish yet, uh, the Nicholas Lardy book, The State Strikes Back, where he predicts that the government is taking a bigger and bigger share in Chinese economy, which is going to be, as you already denied, uh, debunked this theory, another theory of Chinese slowdown. What do you think of this book? Thank you. Well, uh, The great Chinese slowdown has been predicted for 20 years, and it hasn't come. If you look at the details of what China is doing, China, for example, installs more robots than the United States and Europe combined. It's still increasing the productivity of its population by moving very large numbers of people from countryside to city. It is rapidly modernizing its industrial production, the biggest problem China has in terms of growth is that it has a generation of people who came from the country to the city 20 years ago when, they're, when they were young. They're now in their 40s. They've been working in semi-skilled jobs, and there's really no place for them to go. So they're parked in state-owned industries, which are unproductive and often require subsidies, and that's a drag on Chinese productivity. So it will take a while for Chinese reforms to redeploy those people to other jobs. Services have been growing at the expense of manufacturing. There are entire new cities in the uh, center of China that American tourists have never heard of with 20 million people that are the center of China's rapid economic growth. So I don't believe that there is any inherent obstacle to Chinese economic growth. I think there are managing problems, and China will comfortably be able to maintain you know, 5 6% economic growth for another decade, which means its economy roughly doubles over that period. There's always a political risk that the so-called Chinese left wing will arrest China's development, but I think it's extremely unlikely because the Chinese Communist Party has, as a principal objective, staying in power. It'll stay in power if it can continue to meet the aspirations of the citizens, and it won't do that by going back to methods which nearly destroyed it during the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. So. 
I'm not privy to the deliberations of the Politburo, but I think that's a very unlikely outcome. Yes. So I, uh, last couple of years, Uh, Steve Bryan, who used to run the Export Controls Office at Pentagon, has written about this, and I think made a great deal of sense, that there are a lot of technologies we simply don't want to let them have. Uh, Katie McFarland the other day uh, pointed out that during the Cold War, we wouldn't even let the Russians buy a Xerox machine. They were still using mimeographs when communism fell. So there are a lot of technologies that we simply don't want to let the Chinese have. Uh, it's not a matter, I mean, Silicon Valley can say what it wants, but there are a lot of things you're not going to get from the Europeans. There are things we can't stop them from getting. For example, machines for chip design you can buy from the United States, but you can also buy them from Siemens in Germany. And I very much doubt that the Germans could be cajoled or threatened into cutting off exports to China. Siemens has been in joint ventures with Huawei since 2004, 15 years. So that's not going to happen. But we could certainly slow them down. But the most important thing is to do better than they do, produce better products. It's a very poor strategy to try to stop someone else from doing something that they do better than you. You can throw your weight around, but your weight will never be enough to stop them. Uh, we need to unleash American innovation and drive their products out of the market by producing better ones. Well, no, everybody imitates everybody else. I mean, the Bessemer process in steel was invented by uh, Sir Charles Bessemer, not by, uh, you know, not by Andrew Carnegie. Uh, the light bulb was invented by a British physicist, not by Thomas Edison. Uh, industrial espionage is vastly overrated. Somebody gets on a plane with a briefcase full of blueprints and flies to Beijing, and people can look at the blueprints. That's not really the issue. If you set up a factory, you've got a bunch of engineers who learn to do the process, then you hire them away, and they can do it for somebody else. You learn by creating the team that does the entire process. That's, that's how technology really is transferred, which means you don't want to let American companies do certain kinds of things at all. For example, I wouldn't let Boeing produce aircraft in China. That would be an example of something I'd stop. I'm much more concerned, though, about uh, new technology. I'll give you an example. Semiconductor manufacturing. The latest Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing chip fabrication plant will cost $20 billion. That's an astonishing sum for a single factory. Might be the most expensive factory in history. Uh, don't quote me on that, but it's certainly way up there. 
these are you know enormous presses. There are, there's research at MIT which uses an application of quantum mechanics to grow to grow circuits as opposed to squishing the material down into them, which would cost a tiny fraction of what that does. It would wipe out you know, several hundred billion dollars of investment. So we, when we have the level of R&D that we had during the Reagan years, we don't know exactly what we're going to get out of it. For example, the process for chip manufacturing, which became standard, CMOS chip manufacturing, was invented, well, theoretically by Fairchild, but RCA Labs perfected it because someone at Pentagon decided they wanted fighter pilots to do weather forecasting in the cockpit, and they needed a lighter, faster ship. So the RCA guys came up with this process, which became the standard for chip manufacturing in 1976. By 1978, it was used for look-down radar and F-15s, and by 1982, the Israelis demonstrated at the Beikon Valley Turkey shoot that this and other avionic advances could wipe out the Russian advantage in surf surface-to-air missiles. And that's what finally, that was the first death knell of communism. So I don't know exactly which technologies are going to succeed. I know certain things we absolutely must develop, like quantum computing. But the most important thing is to recreate the network of corporate laboratories, defense, uh, uh, defense agencies which fund basic research, um, national laboratories, universities, which we had in the 1980s and which made us the wonder of the world. Sir. Talk about what we we talk about what we should do, but when I look about what happened, like I look at like Bell Labs, for instance, Nokia, the remnants of Bellcor, the research arm of the Baby Bells, yes. Ericsson, Semitech, I guess still exists, but I don't know. I mean, that was our reaction to the semiconductor issue in the eighties. I mean, even our influence with, with economic development in third world countries like OPIC and USTDA, it doesn't seem like it's enough. I mean, what? Why did we allow ourselves to get into this situation in the first place? Well, I think the answer is the Clinton peace dividend. After the fall of communism, we were so strong that we couldn't imagine that we would ever need to do anything militarily again. We would just sit there. So the whole federal research and development effort was built down vastly. That was under Clinton. We, all, this, we also... As uh, Walter McDougall of University of Pennsylvania recently wrote in a superb essay for Law and Liberty, we also decided that NATO should be like a social welfare organization as opposed to a military organization that everybody should join, kind of like UNESCO. You know, UNESCO with blue uniforms or something. So, uh, and that was disastrous. Then we had the Bush administration, of which uh, I was a, I've been a very severe critic from the beginning. Uh, President Trump estimates that we spent $7 trillion chasing the phantom of nation-building around the world. I don't know if that's the right number, but it was trillions. And at the same time, we vastly neglected basic R&D. We just couldn't do both at the same time. We made a terribly poor choice. We, received, we got nothing but a lot of heartache and humiliation for our investment in nation-building. We built no nations. 
And meanwhile, we neglected our, our basic industry and our technology. So uh, corporations who no longer had the relationship with the federal government, which subsidized their basic R&D, moved out of it. The other thing that happened is the Chinese pushed us out of it. The Asians have always subsidized capital-intensive industry. That's the Asian model. Japanese did it in 1900. It's not new. The difference is China is 1.4 billion people. They're gigantic. The gravitational pull of that Chinese <coughs> subsidy chased all American money out of hardware into software, out of capital-intensive into so-called capital-light investments. Now, how do you deal with that? Well, we can go to the Chinese and say, change your economic system or we'll tax furniture or whatever. Or, uh, I'm, I'm exaggerating slightly. I don't believe we can force the Chinese to change their system. That's been the Asian system since 1868. They don't know any other way to run a business. So we've got to do some things on our own, and that will, in some cases, require subsidies, the way we give subsidies to defense companies. I hate subsidies. They lead to corruption. They lead to inefficiencies, the wrong way to do things. But in a national security situation, sometimes you do things in a suboptimal way. Having the Marines close, engage, and destroy is not exactly an economic value-added proposition either. But you do it for national security reasons. Sir. Could you speak to the currency and the strategy that the Chinese have in respect? Yes, absolutely. The Chinese would like to see the RMB become a global reserve currency and challenge the dollar. They are very cautious about moving in that direction. They have created RMB payment networks, which roughly doubled their volume in the last couple of years. That's very useful for countries subject to sanctions like Russia. Iran, Turkey, and so forth. So they basically run the equivalent of a little money laundering operation in RMB on the side, benefiting from the difficulties that sanctioned countries have using the dollar-based payment system. Would do you want to keep your checking account in a Chinese bank in RMB? Well, obviously not. Neither does General Motors, neither does Siemens, neither does Mitsubishi. So the until such a time that China develops a capital market which is free and open and efficient, you can't have a reserve currency because people don't want to keep their reserves in your currency. They don't want to hold your balances there. But over the next 10 to 15 years, the Chinese certainly want to move in that direction. One of the areas of market opening that they're most eager to do is the financial sector. J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, BlackRock, all of these companies can't wait to get into China. I mean, this is the savings of a billion and a half people, vastly profitable business. The Chinese want Western expertise in managing a banking and asset management system to help them advance towards this goal. So it is a significant threat to the United States uh, over the long term. Uh, I think many accounts of Chinese intentions to make the RMB into reserve currency have been alarmist because it's much more difficult than a matter of, you know, signing a few laws. You have to gain the confidence of the world. In terms of the RMB's present value, uh, it's definitely in China's interest not to let it fluctuate too much. They don't want to 
depreciated aggressively because they want to keep confidence in their capital markets. So they've depreciated it a bit, which helps take some of the edge off the tariffs. Uh, but I don't think they, they will allow it to depreciate seriously if they can possibly avoid it. And since they've got well over $2 trillion of reserves, they have quite a war chest. So I don't think the RMB in the short term is going to be very volatile. Uh, one, two, three, four. So, okay, first, yes. Uh, yes, sir. I'm, I'm, I'm personally very, uh, I'm personally very interested in the, uh, in the rise of China and the effects that it's had on its own people investing in real estate in the United States and the effects that it, that has had on my uh, generation. And I would like to know your opinion um, on the matter of Chinese citizens investing in residential real estate around the world? Well, during the great housing bubble of 1998 to 2008, the United States ran a current account deficit each year of about $600 billion. It was enormous. And the whole world was flush with savings. Chinese were enormous savers and many others, not just the Chinese. I was at that point head of debt research for Bank of America and we sold vast amounts of mortgage-backed securities to the Chinese who thought, gee, this is safe as houses. This uh, helped create a bubble in housing in the United States, supported some very bad credit decisions. In order to create these bonds that we could sell to the Chinese, we dragooned every drunk off the street we could and put a mortgage in front of them and got them to sign it. I mean, we... Uh, lowered credit standards. We did outrageous things as bankers. It's one of the reasons I left the industry. So that created a housing bubble which pushed your generation out of the housing market, pushed housing out of reach. So it had a terrible consequence for you. Uh, that is a bit different than the personal investments of Chinese in real estate around the world. Uh, as my old boss at Reorient Group, Johnson Co., once told me, Every generation of Chinese for the past thousand years has been expropriated. So we all want to keep some money outside of China. And real estate is viewed as a safe investment. Those flows have diminished a great deal, partly because the Chinese have been effective in putting exchange capital controls on. And I think the effect is much diminished since the uh, 1980s. Next question was in order... Um, I was curious because I've seen a bunch of uh, blowback from other Asian countries like Japan um, with China's gaining power and trying to become a hegemony. My question is, um, what role do you think that those countries will play in helping either hinder, postpone, or prevent the potential hegemony that China can get in the next coming decades? I think the Japanese are keeping their powder very dry. They're being very cautious. For example, let's say hypothetically we had a war where the United States interdicted energy supplies to China. They could do that. But since every barrel of oil that goes in the Persian Gulf goes through the South China Sea, not a barrel of oil would reach Japan either. So the last thing Japan wants is a conflict between the U.S. and China because collateral damage would be catastrophic. The Japanese and Chinese don't like each other. Japanese certainly are prepared to develop nuclear weapons very quickly if they have to develop it. They're investing in their own defense. 
but at the same time, the Chinese market is hugely important to them. And I think they are opportunistically lying back, waiting to see who wins and what kind of deal they have to make. If the United States is strong and assertive, I think the Japanese will certainly be on our side. Japan has more foreign assets than China. Japan certainly could be the major funder of an alternative to the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, along with South Korea, which is extremely active in foreign investments in Southeast Asia. To some extent, India, though India is more challenged because it really has its own internal development problems to deal with before it uh, expands overseas. So I certainly think there would be potential if we had a clear policy to ensure American hegemony. But since our policy has been very uncertain, everybody is gaming us. I think that's the simple way to put it. Sir? Sorry, was there another question there? Yeah, okay. Uh, there and then in front. Sorry. What do you make the uh, CFIS review process as it currently stands? Is it effective? Uh, do you expect that it'll be effective in the future? And is it the kind of direction you'd like to see the United States go in in terms of trying to put some control over what products end up in Chinese hands? Uh, I think the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. Uh, has been better under Trump than it was under Obama. It's improved a great deal. I'm less concerned about Chinese investment in the U.S. than I am about U.S. export of technology to China, but these are you know, obviously similar things. Uh, I'm for an extremely tough policy. I would try to deny China access to key technology, either by investing in the U.S. or by American companies operating in China. Uh, but that will only work if we're simultaneously investing in better technologies on our own. So it's a matter of, uh, of offense and defense. Defense, at best, delays your enemy. You win by offense. In front? Thank you very much. Uh, one, 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 more, one, one more question? There will be a reception okay. uh, just across the hall. I apologize. Yeah, please join us there. Ask your question there. And let's thank uh, Mr. Goldman.